All right. So, if you've been with us for a few weeks, or if you haven't, you know that we've been spending our Lent season uh, leaning into stories where Jesus heals and saying, what does that look like and what, what, is it might, what might that be speaking to us as a people today in terms of the areas that, that God wants to heal us and bring wholeness to us? So we're going to look at a story from John today. Kelly, I've asked her to, uh, to just read it so that we get a different voice than mine. Thank you, Kelly. Wonderful people like Kelly don't mind if I ask her 20 seconds before I get up on stage. It's not that those of you that that freaks out are not wonderful. It's just helpful to me to have a couple of them in this congregation. That's all. This is from John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us, the law, in the law of Moses it commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thanks, Kelly. I'm just going to save the battery. We're good. Did, did anyone notice anything unique in that story? It's one that many of you are familiar with, given our, our series that we're talking about right now. There's no healing in it. Yeah, so six weeks ago when we started planning this out and looking at it and looking at stories that inspire, I put together this group, our pastoral team, we, we worked together, um, and I got to this week, like just this week after putting the whole thing together, and I'm studying and preparing for this, and then I realized there's no healing in this story. Every other one, Jesus has this physical healing in the story. And so on, on Monday, I'm thinking, shoot. Do I have to replace this story? Because it doesn't match what we've been telling people that we're going through. And then I sat with it for a, a, about 30 seconds longer and realized, no, definitely not. Uh, because this is a healing story. And so um, it actually matches just right. But what we're going to do this week, just a little bit, um, is we're going to do some group think. So the ways in which it's a healing story are, are going to be informed by you all. All right? So I'm just going to tell the story. I'm just going to tell the story and help us dive in. And then you all are going to help us see what is the healing that's represented in the story, and we're going to go from there. All right? So we get to share in this as a community experience together. If you don't know this, uh, if you haven't been around enough to know our catchbox thing, you don't actually have to say anything. It's an option uh, to share in, in this, this moment. So we're going to dive in, and hopefully you will see how beautiful and deeply relevant a story like this is in our lives and, um, and what God is communicating through um, a story that actually hits differently from different angles in really, really big ways. Okay, first off, interestingly, uh, 
it, this, this story itself is not in all of the earliest Greek manuscripts. So some of you in your Bible, this is in italics, or it's actually this massive footnote in the bottom. And the reason is because in various early manuscripts that we have, it's either not there or it's at a spot in Luke or it's um, at a different spot in the book of John um, here. And it's kind of all over the place. And there's a lot of mystery as to why that is. It seems like it was a story of Jesus that was um, either added slightly later or adjusted by the original writers to put it in this place in the book of John because it explains and and gives a helpful flow to what's happening with with, Jesus. with Jesus at this point in the story. But the the fascinating thing is that as kind of the years went by and this was codified and added and and declared, yes, this has been in the story in some way early enough to be a part of the canon of of the scriptures and everything like that. Um, St. Augustine, when, when he was looking at all of this stuff, he believed that this story was left out originally, get this, by men of little faith because they thought that it showed Jesus encouraging adultery. So he's like, oh, people were like, oh, this is Jesus being too easy on people, so we're just going to remove it from the Bible. And he called them men of little faith. Men of little faith who don't believe in the power of the grace of God quite enough. I just thought that that's a great little statement. So I would suggest that we try to approach this story by not being people of little faith. All right, this story should provoke us and challenge us on a, a whole bunch of levels, and it should fill us with hope, but, um, but I'm going to let you tell how that's going to happen. So I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the law, I want to talk about motive, and I want to talk about dirt, all right? And that's going to give us the story, and then we'll go to y'all. All right, so the first thing that we get, and, and we see the story, and you can kind of work, work with me, Sean, as we, as we go here. Uh, what we get is, um, it's in the middle of this, this series. Jesus is super popular at this point in the book of John because of his healing. Um, there's all these signs that are happening. We're going to talk about the signs in the book of John uh, again on Easter morning. So, there's a little teaser. Uh, and why it's so important that John clarifies that there's seven significant signs in the book of John. But, anyways, Jesus has been doing these healing things. He's getting super popular. He's starting to raise um, issues with, with the religious leaders, everything like that. Um, and he's kind, of, he's kind of exhausted. It's really interesting. Just a little side note. Um, everybody else goes home at the beginning of this story after, um, after a full day of kind of debates. Jesus is talking at one of the festivals, and it says that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. So I just want you to imagine, because we, we don't humanize Jesus enough sometimes, I just want you to imagine that at the end of the day, it's time for sleep, and everybody has somewhere to go. And Jesus just heads up to the Mount of Olives and sleeps under a tree. This is the image that we get. This is when everyone says, I want to follow you, Jesus, and he goes, <laughs> you know, even foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So we get this imagery that's coming out that Jesus has gotten used to a life that is both incredibly full of the Spirit of God, but also very lonely at times, also very isolated at times, also times where he has to withdraw on purpose, but also times where that's just the only place he has to go. So it's, it's a, just a powerful reminder that everybody goes, and then Jesus goes. He goes to pray. He goes to sleep. And just imagine Jesus alone sleeping under an olive tree. Okay, so um, at dawn, Jesus appears again in the temple courts. All the people are gathered around him, right? everybody's around, and he's getting ready to teach them. And in the midst, so Jesus, they, they have wanted to come. And remember, Jesus' end goal 
is really to, to teach people about the kingdom of God and to show them the kingdom of God. It's not just to heal a bunch of people. He's been healing because that's the compassionate nature of God when those needs come. But his goal is to help declare what the kingdom of God is all about. So he's having the opportunity to teach right now. He's getting a chance to say, hey, listen, you've all heard that God is like this, but I'm going to tell you a new way of understanding God's heart. And so in the midst of this, he gets interrupted, all right? He gets interrupted by some of the people who don't really want him to talk about what, how the kingdom of God is different than how they've heard it. Because it's the teachers of the law and it's the Pharisees and it's people in power who have an opportunity to maintain that power and status quo. And Jesus has been threatening that. So, the teach, and we'll talk about that in motive in a second. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, so she's in the middle of a crowd. And by the way, uh, there's a lot of, even the image, I don't know if it was up here before. We, I, I, yeah, there we go. Um, even the images that are often made of this story always have the woman on the ground. That's not the case. That's not at least what we're told. We're told that they made her stand. That they made her, that, that even if she wanted to hide everything, they, they made her stand in the middle. There's an extra level of exposure here. It's especially, it, it reads, when you are reminded of that, it reads especially cruel. There's a crowd standing around, and she's, she's not even able to be on the ground, to be honest, where she can be shielded from the second or third row of people. She is, they made her stand. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, all right? So she's called being unfaithful. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, we're going to pause right there because they, they make a mention of in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So let's just talk about this, this reality for a moment. Um, in, in the book of Leviticus, in, in chapter 20, uh, where much of the, the Jewish law is, um, if um, a man commits adultery with another man's wife, says in, uh, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay? So they're not wrong. They're not wrong based on the law. Okay? So, so Jewish law said that the punishment for this crime was stoning. Uh, now, we should be noticing that there's a little bit of, of, a, of a gap in the, in the story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, where's the guy? Right? So, so this is one of the first moments that we notice that something's off here. Something's off. Now, we actually do not get any glimpse. It could have been a completely baseless accusation and a, and a setup, but we don't actually get a glimpse that this was untrue. Not like that, that's more conjecture. But what we do get is it's certainly very unequal. All right? So we only have this woman brought up. So, so there's, was, was this guy in on the plan? Um, was he one of the Pharisee group? Was this, there, this was definitely a setup on some level, and we notice it because only half of the partnership is actually going to experience any of this punishment, okay? But that's what the law commanded. Now, the interesting thing is that in Deuteronomy 17, uh, in, in verse 7, the, the way of doing this thing is that the hands of the witnesses must be the first ones in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. So the way that the people would enact judgment, and by the way, this is supposed to be super off-putting to us. Like, it's supposed to be, like, horrific. But uh, what would happen is when there was a stoning, when there was an execution, they would go to the hillside, the edge of the gate. The, gate, the gates of cities were kind of seen as, as uh, everything, every judgment happened outside the city gate. Okay, um, It was a part of 
the, the metaphor of, of holiness inside and, and everything like that. So they would go out to the side to the city gate. Many cities and towns were built on the little hillside, so there were cliffs everywhere. And what they would do is they would actually bury um, a man up to, up to his waist or a woman up to her, her shoulders in the dirt. This is horrifying, by the way. And then people who were the accusers and the condemners would then drop stones until this person was dead. Uh, it's, it's very, very intense um, but it could only happen if the ones who were accusing participated. Okay? That was the rule. Couldn't be the accusers over here and then somebody else does the, the dirty work. All right? So, so this is, this is the, the story. This is the, the thing that's about to happen. And then everybody would have to participate because the whole, the whole community is agreeing that this person has broken the law and the punishment must be to keep the people holy. It must be carried out. So it's, it's an all-in sort of a thing. So... All right. Great story. Fun Sunday morning. Uh, okay. So. Oh, and by the way, this, this was reserved for like more major crimes in, in Jewish culture, like blaspheming against God, um, idolatry, sexual infidelity, um, that stuff. But it's, it's brutal. It's terrifying. Um, and, and this is where we're at in the story. So we go on, but then we find out just a little bit more insight about the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So all of a sudden we have a different motive. The motive is not justice. The motive is that the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted to trap and trick Jesus. They wanted a reason to take away Jesus' influence. And here's the thing. If you get Jesus denying one of the laws of Moses, then you say he's no longer faithful, he's blaspheming, and we can go ahead and prosecute him, okay? So then the religious leaders get to take control and say, clearly you are no longer in line with Judaism, whatever, um, and you can't be a rabbi, all this stuff, and they they would be able to try to imprison him, possibly kill him. But if he agrees to it and, and oversees this and says, yeah, go get him, then what happens is that Jesus, who has been preaching this radical message among a broken people, among a people who have been told that they are not good enough by the religious elite, but then Jesus says, actually, you are infinitely valuable in God's eyes. You're not unclean. I'm going to be willing to touch you. I'm going to be willing to eat with you. I'm going to be willing to share in community with you. If Jesus then goes ahead and condemns one of the people that he's been giving good news to, the crowd dissipates. So Jesus remains faithful to the law, but nobody wants to follow him anymore because his message isn't radical, yeah? So, so on every level, you've got, like, it's a good trap. It's a good setup. They've thought this through. So, so the leaders of the law, they come, and, and by the way, if, it's really, really important to notice that in the midst of all of this, this woman is both the center of this horrible attention in the crowd and also not the center of attention at all among the Pharisees. They don't care about her. So it's the worst of both worlds. She's being put on display, but she's not even the point. Okay? So, so we're supposed to be kind of confronted with the grossness of all of this as readers. But it does hit us differently than it would have hit the original readers. But there's a lot of carryover and crossover. Okay, so... Verse 6, they were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, this is where it gets fun, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay. 
That's weird. I mean, Jesus does some weird stuff. Next week, he's going to do some weird stuff again in, our, in the healing story. It involves spit, you know. Uh, but, but Jesus does some odd things sometimes. And, and so what ends up happening is in the midst of this, all eyes are on him. It's a big moment. And Jesus bends down and starts writing in the, on the ground something, we don't know, with his finger. Okay? We, we, we don't know. But apparently it took a little bit of time. And he started to kind of ignore the Pharisees. So they begin to continue. In verse 7, they kept on questioning him. He, uh, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, this is the statement that we remember. If you've grown up in a faith background, you are familiar with this incredibly powerful statement of Jesus. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. But then Jesus goes back down and keeps writing on the ground. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, here's the thing. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote on the ground, but that has not stopped all of us from trying to figure it out. Uh, the, over the course of history, tons of people have said, what, what do you think he was writing? And everybody's got their own theories, me included. Uh, St. Augustine suggested that maybe what Jesus was writing on the ground was, a, was, was the law, establishing himself as the new lawgiver. Whether he was writing the old law that would be wiped away in the dust and walked over, or whether he was writing his new law that he would tell his disciples, which was quite simple. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor with that equal kind of care. Who knows, but, but maybe that that's, that that's what was happening, echoing what God did with the Ten Commandments on etching on the stone. Uh, others think that he was like just doodling, providing a distraction, right? All eyes are on this woman, and Jesus all of a sudden creates this weird curiosity thing where immediately this woman has just a little bit of the respite from her. We, we don't know if, if she was clothed or not like this, but all we know is that Jesus immediately shifts the attention to him. So some people thought, okay, so Jesus is doodling. He's writing something. Maybe, it's, maybe he's just writing a picture. I, if I imagine this, I like to think that Jesus was writing like stick figures of the Pharisees with, with super, super big brains and super tiny hearts. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, others thought um, that maybe he was writing about the sins of the accusers. Laying out laying out the things that nobody else can see. And maybe they see them, and Jesus says, I know what's in your heart and spirit, so go ahead if you want to condemn, if you think that you are in the right position to do so. And it's overwhelming. I think there's a good chance of that, um, Jesus using his knowledge of what they have done. Uh, some think that this is a reference to Jesus, uh, or that this reference of Jesus writing with his hand is a reference to the disembodied hand of Daniel 5. If you know um, this story, if you don't, it's a really super weird, interesting story. I won't get too deep into it, but, um, but this, this king has an image um, in the time of Daniel, Belshazzar. He's got this image of a hand that writes on the wall in the midst of his unfaithfulness. He's a... a Assyrian or um, Babylonian, Babylonian king. And, uh, and this hand writes four words, many, many, tekel, parson. 
and the words are somewhat relevant to that moment, but the, the larger thing is saying your time of reign is coming to an end and you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. That's Mene and Tekel. Um, and then Parshan says, and the Persians are going to be the ones to take over. But, but so, so this idea of, hey Pharisees, you're clinging to your power, but it's not going to last. And also, I see your heart, back like the previous one, I see your heart, and it's lacking. So, so that's, that's one option. And then there's where I'm at. And I'm with a guy named St. Jerome from uh, a whole bunch of hundred years ago. And here's what, here's what he thinks, and I think there's a possibility of this, um, but I think there's a possibility of the others. Uh, I think the first time Jesus bends down, he's writing the names of the religious leaders surrounding him if he knew them. Okay? I think that he's writing their names, which makes no sense. They keep, they keep questioning him. He's writing their names. And I think the second time that he stoops down, he writes the words of Jeremiah 17, verse 13. And Jeremiah 17, verse 13, we'll put it up on the screen here. Uh, it says, Lord, you are Israel's hope. All who abandon you will be put to shame. They will disappear like names written in the dust because they have abandoned you, the Lord, the spring of fresh water. And I think that there's a chance because of how well people knew the scriptures, that when Jesus writes in the sand, there's only a couple of times, or writes in the dust, there's only a couple of times and references in the scriptures where there's something like that. So I think the possibility of Jesus writing their names and then exposing their hearts by reminding them that those who are abandoning truly the nature and the character of God have no significance in God's kingdom. But who knows? So I hope that was helpful. Uh, but, but the whole idea is that Jesus does something so provocative, so interesting, so different, okay, that eventually it has this profound impact on the Pharisees. And what ends up happening, and I think this is interesting, um, at this, this is in verse 9, those who heard him, who heard, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. I really hope that the reason they included the older ones first is because the, the, the heart of wisdom that comes with age, they were quicker to see that their need for revenge and putting somebody in the crosshairs of their own plan, their, their own attempts to get rid of Jesus, was so grossly inappropriate that they couldn't handle it and they realized that they needed to be the first ones to change. I hope that happens. I hope that happens with me in my life as I get older. Um, but there's, there's power and there's beauty in the midst of this story. Um, so Jesus goes on, and all of a sudden, oh sorry, one more back. Um, all of a sudden, uh, we're left with people leaving until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now that, that reference is not intended to say that they were actually alone. Um, the crowd probably would have still been watching this whole thing unfold unless the crowd understood themselves as being a part of the stoning. But uh, we imagine that there were still people watching this whole thing unfold, but the, the accusers were no longer present. And Jesus looks at her, and he says, Woman, why, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, now, it's really, really important to notice that if Jesus says, let whoever is without sin cast the first stone and everybody else leaves, Jesus is with her in the only, as the only one who has 
the potential to correctly judge. But, um, and so what ends up happening... You're good. What ends up happening... It's turned off. What ends up happening in the midst of this whole, this whole story is Jesus is the only actual sinless person in the story. Jesus is the only one in the righteous position to execute the judgment. And he says, I'm not going to condemn you either. But then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. So, so if we want to just deny the fact that, like, you know, like men of little faith and say, he's just too easy, Jesus calls her into something new and beautiful. But he also calls her out of the condemnation of what she's been experiencing from others. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so, there is this beautiful journey of going and living whole on the other side. He addresses her, but he only addresses her after he's dealt with the others. I'll let you make of that what you want. He only addresses her and the areas where he's inviting her into newness after he addresses all of those who are trying to condemn, expose, judge. All right. So let's open this thing up a bit. I want to hear your, your uh, perspective. So we're going to put a, a round one dialogue up here. And so here's the question. Where do you see God's heart to heal and make whole in this story? All right? If this whole thing is about healing, where do you see God's heart to heal and make whole in a story that doesn't involve a physical healing? All right? I believe that there are multiple layers. I don't believe it's just one obvious easy one. But so I want to hear. So here's my thoughts. Um, when we do this, we, we stay, whoops. When we do this, we stay humble and we say, well, so what I'm seeing here from my perspective is blank. Uh, also, you don't need to be wordy. We're just kind of doing some... Um, some uh, crowdsourcing to keep learning and growing, all right? So we're going to toss out a few simple statements, and then I have a few ideas of where, then I'll kind of synthesize them, and, uh, and then we'll keep going and, and turn the corner onto practically what, what this looks like. But in this story, where do you see God's heart to heal? Remember, healing is holing, scripturally. So to heal is to bring shalom, to make whole, all right? It's not just put a boo-boo or a band-aid on the boo-boo. It's to make whole. So where do you see God's heart to make whole in any direction in this story? Yeah. Thank you. A helpful segue, because I think there's a triple healing here, and Mel opened the door to that a little bit. Um, I think in the midst of this story, this, this woman, she needs to be healed from the destruction of the judgment of others. And that is a massively damaging thing. That is a deep injury that Jesus speaks to and heals when he sends everybody away. She needs to be healed from the destruction of her own choices, possibly. Again, we're conjecturing here, um, but I expect with the way that Jesus encouraged her, like the rest of us, healed from the destructiveness of our own sin, healed from the destructiveness of others' judgment of our own sin. And I think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law needed to be healed from their destructive need to do harm. I think sometimes we can only see ourselves as holy when we compare ourselves to others who we deem less than holy. We can only, uh, we, we have to inflict harm. We, we look at God's goodness as a, uh, is it zero sum? Zero sum game? I might be getting that wrong. But as a, as a pie, right? And so God's goodness, if, if we experience a lot of it, we can't let other people who are less deserving experience every bit as much of it. 
And so we see this in Jesus' story where uh, the parable where the workers are paid, right? They're paid the same wages, some work less, and, and the people who are paid a fair wage get all their, their clothes in a bunch. <laughs> I realize that's probably a super sexist phrase, so I'm, like, I'm not going to use it. <laughs> um, but they, they get all worked up about, the, about God's, God's grace being available for everybody in fair, beautiful ways. And so, so anyways, there's, there's multiple levels, so levels of all this. So Jesus enters, he restores her dignity. We'll look at the various ways, right? The condemning voices that Jesus silences. The dignity that's stripped from this woman by her humanity being treated as a pawn in somebody else's game. The destructive choices. By the way, Jesus' kindness leading to transformation is such a crucial turning point in what he is revealing about the gospel, right? In the book of Romans, thank God the early church got this. At least I think sometimes they got it. I, I think other times they miss it. But um, in Romans 12, why don't we throw it up here? In Romans, or I'm sorry, in Romans 2, uh, the, what, what we get is, therefore you, he, he takes aim, the writer of Romans takes aim at those who are doing the same things that the Pharisees did. You pass judgment on somebody else. Have no excuses. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. <laughs> because you who pass judgment do the same things, right? He's saying, you think that you are high and holy by pointing out all of the flaws of another. But actually, you're, you're, you're telling the world, or at least you're telling God, that you're worthy of the exact same judgment. Because we all know you're not perfect. We all know that you have your own issues, but you are projecting onto another person with this need to judge. Um, now, we know God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And by the way, you've got to read. We love, I mean, some churches love talking about judgment. Some churches don't want to mention that the word is actually in the New Testament a lot. Um, we need to try to be faithful here. But remember, God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God judges in this story. Just be aware of that. Jesus judges. It just looks different than how you and I would. So yeah, God is judged. Thank God that that judges Jesus. And that the nature of how God judges is full of grace and mercy. And Jesus flips the script on what they've learned. So, um, so every time it's talking about God's judgment, we have to think about the way that Jesus judged sin. <laughs> in himself, in the way that he communicated to others, and there is, whew, it's awesome. Um, but so, so we don't need to get nervous about these, these things. We need to dive deep into the, the character of Jesus. Or do you show, here we go, this is what I really want to, to point out. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Jesus could have said, you deserve to die. I'm going to let you off easy today. And maybe she would have been like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I will definitely change. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus' heart here is absolutely full of kindness. God's kindness changes us. We, we talk all the time, and, you know, as, as parents, this is important to us. But how do you, how do you uh, transform behavior? Well, fear is a moderately good way to do it right? If you are terrified of bad things happening, you might behave differently. You might change your actions. One thing that won't change is your heart. So as soon as you are away from that fear, then you do whatever you want because you haven't been transformed. If, you, if your behavior is modified because such love and kindness has been shown to you, that you want to emulate that, that you want to imitate a life like that, so I don't want to live in destructive ways, that is transformative forever. So when we think about God's kindness leading us to repentance, repentance just means turning, right? 
Just means turning in a new direction. God's kindness leads us toward new ways of doing things, not God's threat. So if we want to be people who live differently and who encourage one another to live differently, then we take our cues from Jesus and we show kindness and love and grace which draws people into the good life. Instead of condemnation, which at worst pushes them away or at best makes them feel like second-rate citizens if they comply because you're just uh, worthless. You know, we call it worm theology. God sees you as a worm, but thankfully, he'll let you live in the garden. Not true. Not true. Jesus has communicated that God has deep, deep worth of every human being, deep love, even in the midst of our imperfections and fallenness. Worthy of dignity, right? Even in sin, worthy of dignity. That is transformative more than God always shaking his head and being like, oh man, Keith, you did it again. You're just so, such a pain in the butt. Instead of saying, there's grace, come and live new again tomorrow. Oh, that, that, that motivates me. Um, so, we need to understand that something in us about those Pharisees, something in us sometimes feels like we need to see others suffer to justify ourselves. Or at least we're willing to see others suffer to keep our status quo. This has implications every, every, everywhere. Um, everywhere. So it's, it's important that we, that we just acknowledge that. Um, in this story, Jesus is intending to reshape the very way that we think about judgment, about mercy, about forgiveness, about community. By the way, if you want an insight into Jesus's perspective on killing people to show that killing people is wrong and the death penalty and capital punishment. You don't have to look any further. But Jesus is addressing the power imbalances that exist. He's, ag- he's addressing sexism in this moment. He's addressing scapegoating. He's addressing how we view people. He's advocating for those who are ganged up on with the intent to destroy. And their dignity is that and, and their worth is independent of the good or bad choices that they may have done. Their dignity and worth is independent of the good or bad choices that they may have done, Jesus is showing. So, will we do this today? Will we be people who justify our lust for violence and vengeance in all sorts of different ways? Or will we open ourselves to be those who walk in the character of this Jesus? Lord, help us in all of these moments to just look to you and trust your heart. Though maybe we've been wronged by people or maybe we have been condemned by people for doing wrong. I pray that your grace would heal whatever it needs to in this story. Amen.